All right. Good morning. Welcome to week 12, again, of being scattered together. Uh, we're going to take some time now. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We're going to talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you there, a Bible app, whatever, would you turn with me to our passage today in Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 21. We're going to actually finish out the chapter today. When you found that, let's read it together. Let me actually I'll read it for us. Paul says this, beginning at verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." Because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us quickly and just ask God's blessing on this time and the word, and then we'll... We'll dig in. Uh, Spirit of God, we, we invite you here in a powerful way to speak to us, to speak to us through your word, to teach us, to, to grow us, to fill us more and more. God, as your children, we, we long to be more like Jesus, and we know that's part of the work of the Spirit, through your word to, to shape us and mold us to be more like him. Do that, I pray, through your word today. As we gather, God, give us open ears and hearts. Uh, give us hearts that submit to you and, and are open to you. And then do that work of change in us, God. Accomplish the purpose for which you sent out this word today, as you promised you would. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen, amen. Okay, so... You know what, I just want to dig right in here this morning to our passage today as we continue in our teaching series through the book of Ephesians. And the reason for that is because if you've been a part of our church gathering here for even just like the past six months, you're going to know that this is the exact passage I spoke on actually just a few months ago, back in late November uh, 2019 in our Procovium series as it related to marriage and sexuality and the way that God uses gender within a marriage relationship to help reshape the inward curved nature of our hearts. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised at all if some of you heard the scripture reading start to yourself and you were just like, wait, 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 what? This again? Uh, like, didn't, didn't we just talk about this a few months ago? Like, let me talk, move on to something else here. Well, okay, yeah, we did, yeah. No, we did. I, I, I spoke on this passage and, and, 
I knew. I knew when I made the decision to preach through the book of Ephesians, I knew we'd end up back here again. And, but here's the thing. Here's what's really cool about the Bible and why, one of the reasons I love it so much. Because the, 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 God, the thing about God's Word is that it can speak to us about, in a variety of different ways. And the same passage can teach us about a variety of different topics. So unlike a best-selling novel that you read once and then you pass on to a friend, no, the Bible can, can just continually teach us, feed us, grow us over the course of our lives, even after multiple readings of it. And it's the same reason why you could give the same biblical text to five different preachers, and although yeah, there'd be some similarities, you could hear five different messages preached. It's incredible. Now, now that's not at all, listen, to say that the, the, a biblical text does not have a specific meaning that the biblical author intended to communicate when he originally wrote that text to his original audience. No, and as pastors and theologians, one of our jobs in preaching and teaching God's Word is to try to know and understand that original intent as, as best as possible. But the point is that although the, the truth of God's Word remains unchanged and unchanging, the context in which God's Word is read is always changing. It's, 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 it's absolutely going to change because I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure we're, we're not in... First century Palestine. We're not living in first century Palestine. Last time I checked. No, and, and, and honestly, like really, if, if the truth of God's word can't make that jump, if it doesn't apply to our present day context as well, then apart from, I don't know, being historically interesting, I mean, then really the Bible is ultimately irrelevant. We should just read it and then just move on. Now, Obviously, I don't think that's the case. I believe as we read in Hebrews 4 that the Bible, the Word of God, it is living and active. And I believe that's true because the Holy Spirit who inspired the biblical authors to, to write these words, He is living and active. He's, he's living in us. And He's speaking through His Word. He's speaking through His Word directly into our contexts, whenever and wherever they may be. So, that's the overriding reason why I believe we can still come back and, and return to this same passage. And, and, and there's no issue whatsoever in doing that that we looked at just a few months ago. There's no problem doing that. But listen, even more than that, although the, the lessons that we learned from that last time we were in this passage on, on marriage and, and gender would absolutely be worth revisiting. In fact, I'm going to Post the, the link to that message in the comments of this if you want to go back and review that, check that out again, or maybe you didn't get to hear that message. Definitely recommend go back and, and watch through that message again. But listen, what we're going to see this morning as we dig back into this passage is that Paul was actually addressing two separate but related realities at the exact same time. That is, he was addressing a sign God's design for marriage, for his redeemed and reconciled people, as well as the greater reality to which that sign of marriage points, namely the relationship between Christ and his body, the church. And what we spent the majority of our time looking at, uh, the last time we went through this passage, was the way Jesus' relationship with the church helps us understand the marriage relationship. And the way that a husband and wife are to, to work best together, what we're going to focus on today is that greater, uh, deeper reality of how the marriage relationship helps us understand the relationship between Jesus, our bridegroom, and his bride, the church. 
which is, listen, that's something critically important for every single one of us to understand, especially if you consider yourself to be a part of a Jesus bride, the church, because if Jesus is our bridegroom, which is something that's described here in our passage, all kinds of other places in the Bible, you find it specifically in places like Revelation 19, where Jesus is described as his bridegroom and the church prepared and in beauty for him. But if Jesus is our bridegroom, how it is that he relates to us as his bride, that is, the the nature of our relationship with him, is going to have a massive impact on how it is that we relate back to him. You see that? And we know that because as it relates to these descriptions of what submission to one another in marriage is supposed to look like in verses 22 to 33, the majority of the passage, Paul tells us in verse 21 that we are to carry out this mutual submission, not first and foremost out of our reverence and devotion to one another, but out of your reverence, he says, literally in the Greek, your holy fear of Christ. Which means your relationship with Jesus is to be the entire defining and motivating force behind how it is that you relate to your spouse. And then ultimately when we pan out into seeing the the, the church is the bride of Christ, how it is that you relate to everybody in Christ's body. And if that's true, then yeah, I'd say understanding the, the, the nature of our relationship with Jesus and, and his church, it, it's pretty important. Pretty important for us to understand that, wouldn't you? Because well, what sort of bridegroom is he? What kind of bridegroom is Jesus? Is Jesus a spouse in the traditionalist sense of marriage that that prioritizes uh, commitment and obedience over feelings of love and affection? Is he a spouse like in the modern Western understanding of marriage that, that prioritizes self-fulfillment over compi- or your personal self-enjoyment and fulfillment over commitment? Well, beautifully, what we find in Paul's description of how we're to relate to one another in our earthly marriages is that Jesus is neither of those. He's neither. His relationship to us as his bride is one of deferential completion and sacrificial completion. Deferential and sacrificial completion. Headings you may remember even from the last time we preached through this message. The only difference here being that being God in human flesh, Jesus is able to carry out both roles himself. He's able to do both. So, okay, if you've closed your Bibles... Uh, closed your Bible app, but you open it up again with me to this passage here, Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 21. Follow along with me. I know that that's feels like a lot already, <laughs> so uh, I'm going to just slow it down here, just try to help untangle the web as best I can and help us see and really find that the life and rest and peace that God intended for us to know in uniting all things in heaven and on earth to himself and Jesus and uniting Christ to his body of the church in particular. So go there with me. Let's, let's look at this. Okay. So let's look first of all at deferential completion. Deferential completion. Now, now, just as a very, very quick review from what we looked at the last time we were in this passage, just so we can all uh, continue on here without having to re-watch that whole message. When you study the creation narrative that we find in Genesis 1 and 2, we, we learn some really important foundational things uh, about God's creation, and men and women in particular. First of all, we learn that men and women are created in the image and likeness of God. That's Genesis 1.27, which means they both have equal value, dignity, and worth. That's the first thing. 
Secondly, although men and women are both image bearers, God describes his creation as not good. That is still incomplete, even after the creation of Adam, until he has created Eve. This teaches us both that men and women are essentially different creations from one another and the goodness of God in creating us different. And that when we are brought together as it relates to the image of God, our differences form a complete whole. In the same way as Kathy Keller notes, pieces of a puzzle sorry, fit together because they are not exactly alike nor randomly different, but differentiated such that together they can create a complete whole. Thirdly, the, the, the man and the woman are brought together before God in a covenant marriage relationship that unites them in every way, uh, relationally, uh, physically, spiritually, uh, totally brought together in this united one flesh whole. And the wedding blessing that God speaks over the very first message, the, the, sorry, the very first marriage, is the same blessing, as you probably might have noticed there, that Paul quotes in verse 31 of our passage, grounding everything that Paul is teaching husbands and wives in Ephesians in the foundational prototypical teaching found in Genesis 1 and 2. Finally, when Adam and Eve rebel against God and sin enters into the world, they are expelled from God's presence in the Garden of Eden, and just as Adam and Eve are created differently from one another, they also bear sin's curse differently from one another as well. Okay, so those are just kind of foundational things, and with that background established or reestablished, Let's look now at Paul's first description of what mutual submission within a marriage relationship is supposed to look like in verses 22 through 24. Look with me there. Again, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, Again, if you weren't with us back in November when we first looked at these verses, the reason I'm saying, actually, the whole passage, really, chapter, or sorry, verses 22 through 33, are describing mutual submission between a husband and a wife is because of what Paul said there in the beginning of our passage, verse 21. Look back with me there. As you can see, Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Which means that, that that tells us two things. First of all, Paul says submission is something that a, a husband and wife are supposed to do to one another in marriage. He says that before he ever tells wives to submit to their husbands. So that's, that, that, that supersedes that because it, it leads into and bleeds into that. So really, verses 22 to 33 are describing then the outworking of submit to one another. Wives, you do it like this. Husbands, you do it like this. But secondly, what it shows us is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What we can see when we understand the the structure of of Greek grammar, like how this actually works together, you see that verse 21 is actually the end of a really long sentence that begins all the way up in verse 18, where Paul tells us not to get drunk on wine, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit, what what Kent uh, preached on last Sunday. The filling of the Holy Spirit is the outworking of this, and one of the ways that that works itself out is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, telling us that, that, that both that submission to one another, that's a fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that as we submit to one another, that's demonstrating the fruit of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives, and once again, 
as we've been saying many weeks now, reiterating the truth that what Paul writes in chapters 4 through 6 only applies if, if the salvation and reconciliation work of chapters 1 through 3 is something that's already true of us. And the way the wife, in particular, is said to bring completion to her husband and to the marriage, we see in verse 22 and verse 24, namely, she is to submit to her own husband in everything. Now, as with Paul's description in the following verses about how husband is to submit to his own wife in marriage, Paul includes a number of, of qualifiers, qualifiers to this command to the spirit-filled wife. He says wives are only to submit to their husbands as to the Lord, as well as uh, as the church submits to Christ. He gives those two important qualifiers, and this is actually super important, super important for, for nowhere. Listen, does the Bible command blind, unqualified submission to any human authority? but only as it aligns itself with God's revealed will. For instance, uh, when we see in Romans 13, Paul, we're, we're told there to submit ourselves to the governing authorities as public servants ordained by God, put in place for the, the thriving and, and protection of society. And yet, there's numerous examples throughout the Bible where civil disobedience is, is necessary when what's being commanded by those authorities goes against what God has commanded. And in fact, given this... Uh, historical and cultural moment we're living in right now, particularly you see in the States with all these uh, rioting and difficulty and, and government unrest and all these things, it might be interesting to just pause for a few minutes and consider this question. So th this is not at all Paul's instruction to wives to just to dismiss and downplay and disregard their own wisdom and, and knowledge and gifts and leadership ability, or to follow their husbands into sin, but only in, in moments of true stalemate within a marriage to defer to the godly leadership of their husbands. That, that's the, really the, the base teaching of this command of Paul's. But maybe you want to say, well, how does deferring to the will of another bring about completion to the husband or, or to a marriage. And I think the answer is found in the example of Christ himself, submitting his will to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's speaking out so we can hear and see that's what he's doing. When he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Demonstrating exactly the kind of bridegroom Jesus is toward his bride, the church. Clearly revealing Jesus is, is not at all the kind of spouse who, according to the modern Western understanding of marriage, sees his own self-fulfillment as the soul tied to his commitment to us. No, no, on the contrary. You see, Jesus, although he was in the very nature God, as Paul says later in Philippians 2, willingly submitting his will to the Father, and facing mocking, beating, crucifixion as a result, all in order to love his bride and serve her greatest need. That's the nature of Jesus' relationship with his church and the kind of love Jesus, your bridegroom, demonstrated for you in walking the grueling path from the manger in Bethlehem all the way to the cross at Golgotha, who for the joy set before him in redeeming his bride, endured the cross, scorned its shame. 
The point is, the more we truly grasp that, the more we truly understand that, that then becomes the most compelling motivation of all for how it is we relate back to Jesus. In this case, for a wife to submit to her own husband's godly leadership as to the Lord. That becomes the motivation when we see him doing that for us. I mean, I I can't even tell you, just personally speaking, as a, a husband, all that something like this has meant to me. As I've sought to step into the scary, oftentimes really overwhelming role of leading my family well, to have my wife, Sarah, listen, however imperfectly, she'd want me to say that to you, however imperfectly, and with all kinds of debate and argument and pushback and and really good learning from each other, to still support me by submitting herself to my leadership and supporting me as I grow into that. I can't even begin to tell you all that that's meant to me as her husband. Or as Kathy Keller notes so powerfully in The Meaning of Marriage that she wrote with her husband, as she considered this idea of Jesus' submission of his will to the Father's will, she says this, If it was not an assault on the dignity and divinity, but rather led to the greater glory of the second person of the Godhead to submit himself and assume the role of a servant, how could it possibly injure me to be asked to play out the Jesus role in my marriage? Are you beginning to see already how these gender roles in marriage, however archaic and outdated they might sound to our modern ears, they do. They do bring completion and fullness within a marriage, but also point powerfully to a a far greater and deeper reality in helping us understand how it is that Jesus relates to his bride, the church, as her bridegroom. Let's keep going. Let, let, let's, let's look now at how the, the very same thing works out in the role that the husband is called to play within an earthly marriage, the role of sacrificial completion. Sacrificial completion. And you can see Paul's description of what mutual submission within a marriage relationship is supposed to look like for the husband in verses 25 through 30. Look with me there. Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So here now, verses 25 and 28, the way that a husband in particular is said to bring completion to his wife and to their marriage is to love her. He is to love her. But before we call the fairness police and lodge a complaint as it relates to some kind of what feels like an unfair disparity here, look carefully at the qualifiers Paul adds to his instruction to husbands as to how they are to love their wives. Namely, they are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love their wives in a way that nourishes and cherishes her. That is, they are to love their wives in a way that serves her interests above his own. And this is equally important for husbands to understand because, if anything, the way that Paul is calling husbands to submit to their wives here is not less than the way wives are called to submit to their husbands. It's greater. 
For where wives are called to lay down their wills in order to bring completion to their husbands and their marriage, husbands are called to lay down their very lives in order to do that. To surrender power and position for her benefit, for her nourishing and cherishing. And just as with Paul's instructions to wives, maybe you'd want to say, well, how does sacrificially loving, how does sacrificially laying down your life for another bring about completion to a wife or to a marriage? I think once again, very clearly we, we see that demonstrated in the example that Christ gave as he loved us. Because yes, Christ, Christ is the head of the church. He is Christ, he says, verse 23, Christ is, he's the head of the church, just as Paul said there that a husband is the head of the wife. And yet, even just a quick momentary glance at the life and ministry of Jesus through the, the Gospels will show you that headship, leadership, and as Jesus defined it, has nothing to do with the kind of domineering, crushing male bravado, but everything to do with sacrifice and servanthood. One of the places you see that most clearly, for instance, is in John 13, where on the very night Jesus knows he's about to be betrayed, abandoned by all of his friends, arrested, face unfathomable abuse and suffering in just a few hours. Takes off his outer robe, dresses in the uniform of a servant, kneels down and washes each one of his disciples' feet. When he dresses again and returns to the table, what does he say to his disciples? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Or in response to the disciples' misguided uh, desire for power in Mark 10, Jesus tells them this, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. There it is as a ransom for many. You see it? You see it? Jesus Jesus is saying here, yeah, I'm your Lord. I'm your master. Yeah, I'm the head of this house. Yes, but in my kingdom, true headship, true power and leadership comes not from asserting your power over others, but in laying it down, in, in sacrificing your very self for the good of those whom you love. It shows us once again, shows us once again the kind of bridegroom Jesus is to his bride, the church, here countering the traditionalist understanding of marriage that prioritizes just bare commitment and obedience over demonstrations of love and deep affection for one another, revealing Jesus is the kind of spouse who lays down power, who lays down position, who lays down his very life in order to demonstrate for all time the, the great unfathomable depth of his love for us. As Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
He's shown us for all time the, the, the great depth of his love. It's not just bare commitment. It's, it's based on his deep love for us. That is also the nature of Jesus' relationship with his church. The kind of love Jesus, your bridegroom, demonstrated for you. Far, far too, uh, too often and, and throughout history, men have used Paul's instruction to wives in verses 22 through 24 like, like a weapon to, to crush down and oppress them. But I don't get it. It's as, it's as though they sp- husbands stopped reading at verse 24 because you just keep the, the very next verse. Paul's called the husband, grounded in the costly, sacrificial love of Christ for his bride, calls us to not only submit our wills, but to sacrifice our very lives in order to love and serve our wives. That's how we submit to them. The point is, once again, the more you truly grasp, the more you truly understand, the more you really see that and let it, let it touch you, the more powerful the motivation we have to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In this instance now, for a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. As I said when we began this morning, Paul has really two separate but inextricably linked realities that he's talking about here in this passage. The sign of marriage, as well as the greater, infinitely deeper reality of the thing to which marriage points, the relationship of Jesus to his bride, the church. For again, we saw in verse 31, after quoting God's blessing spoken over Adam and Eve in the very first marriage in Genesis 2, Paul clearly says, uh, Therefore, a, a, a husband shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then verse, sorry, verse 32, This mystery is profound. I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. That whole thing that he was just describing and, and referring back to, all of that refers to Christ and the church. That's really what I'm talking about here. So yeah, Paul finishes out verse 33 just reiterating what he said. Yes, husbands, uh, love your wives, wives, wives uh, uh, respect your husbands. He, he finishes out that way out of, out of holy reverence and fear for Christ. But what Paul says in verse 32 there clearly shows us marriage as wonderful, as curve reshaping a tool as it is in our lives is not really the point. It is not the ultimate reality in the end at all. Marriage is nothing more than a sign that is pointing us to, that is picturing the unfathomable depth of love that Jesus has for you. It's revealed to us in the message of the gospel. Submitting his will, sacrificing his very life in order to redeem us by his blood and bringing bringing about a one flesh uniting between us, himself, and his body in the church that's greater than any earthly experience of, of marriage or sexuality or anything like that could, could, could even be more than a dim reflection of. That's why whenever we talk about marriage here in the, at, at this church, I always want to just reiterate, listen, if you're not married right now, this, this still applies. This is still meaningful. This, this still has value for you here because marriage, as wonderful a thing as it is, as great as a sign as it is, That's all it is. It's a sign that points us to, that helps us to understand God's love for his bride, the church, for all of us. We all have a spouse that's greater than any spouse we could ever be. And and he is united to us in, in in a one flesh way that we are so connected 
that he sees us, that it's, it's pictured in the way that, that we understand marriage, but it's only a picture pointing to that reality, helping to us to understand how closely identified Jesus is with us now, how great his love is for us, an identification that's actually so deep, that's, that's so real, that's so profound, that if you remember uh, Acts chapter 9, there when uh, the apostle Paul, then Saul, was ravaging the church, uh, uh, dragging off Christians into prison and standing there approving over their executions. When the resurrected Jesus comes to rebuke Saul on the road to Damascus, he doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my people? Even, why are you persecuting my bride? What does he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see how close the identification Jesus has with us as his body, as his bride, the church. And if that's how deeply Jesus identifies with us as his church, if that's the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of Christ's love for us, because remember, the church, it's the people, not the place where they gather. Then how should that inform not just the way husbands and wives submit to each other, but how you and how I regard Christ's bride, the church in general, how we understand this gathering of God's people. How should that understanding that affect the way we prioritize these gatherings on Sunday in our week when we think about how important this is? This is Christ's bride for which he submitted his will and died. How should that inform the, the way we pray for our church? How should it inform the way that we give of our time, talent, and treasure to the church? How should it inform the way we treat the individual members of Christ's bride? united members of his bride from every tribe and language and people and nation that are so precious, that are so valuable to him that he gave his very life in order to redeem us and unite us to himself. And in fact, in light of that, in light of all that we're seeing going on in our world right now, particularly as it relates to this whole subject of racial inequality and, and, and racial prejudice, I think this is just... Understanding this just gives us one more reason why something like racism should not even be named among God's church. For not only should we understand better than anyone the, the, the value and dignity of all people who are created in the image of God, we also understand with unique clarity that who, whoever we were formerly by birth, we are now united as one new humanity through Jesus' death in a way that makes any form of discrimination or prejudice against another part of Christ's bride unthinkable, unimaginable. Yes, marriage gives us a beautiful picture of what Christ's love for us looks like and, and what our love for one another should look like among God's redeemed people as his bride, but the substance of it, substance of it is found in looking to him and Jesus' submission of his will, the sacrifice of his life. And it's found there alone. And thus, as married or not, if you are a part of the church, if you are a part of Christ's bride, it's an understanding and a realization and an ever-growing reality of his love for you, his love for me.
His love for us, His bride, the church.